Welcome to the Reality Taboo Podcast, where no topic is off limits. I'm your co-host Jeff, and joining me is my co-host Ness. It's January 6, 2024, our first episode of the new year. Should be a pretty good show today. We're talking about Israel and Hamas, as well as the December 5th congressional hearings on anti-Semitism and the ensuing fallout. Some pretty spicy topics, which may put the show's motto to the test. Before we get started, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. Let's start with the October 7th attacks in Israel and Israel's response. The Hamas attack was horrific, and Israel retaliating is understandable, but it's hard to know what's really going on. So I wanted to first talk about how did this attack happen in the first place. It's arguably the worst attack in Israel since its founding in 1948. So how did this happen? You can show or you can find videos online showing Palestinians training for the October 7th attack in plain sight. You can see them practicing taking hostages, blowing up buildings. You can see uh, convoys of white trucks going by, going through around the area. The same types of white pickup trucks they used in the actual attack. Um, and so when I was trying to figure out that question, obviously uh, Israel, um, the Likud party and Netanyahu and the Likud party's support for Hamas came up, which sh- shocked me. They have been supporting Hamas for years. Um, so I found this article from the Times of Israel. I wanted to read a few quotes from it. It's entitled, For Years, Netanyahu Propped Up Hamas. Now it's blown up in our faces, our faces being Israelis. This is an Israeli newspaper. Um, So, for years, the various governments led by Benjamin Netanyahu took an approach that divided power between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, bringing Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas to his knees while making moves that propped up the Hamas terror group. The idea was to prevent Abbas, or anyone else in the Palestinian Authority's West Bank government, from advancing towards the establishment of a Palestinian state. And so uh, Hamas was included in discussions about increasing the number of work permits that Israel granted to Gazan laborers. This kept money flowing into Gaza. And finally, the, uh, the point that shocked me the most was this point that, uh, quote, Israel has allowed suitcases holding millions in Qatari cash to enter Gaza through its crossing since 2018 in order to maintain its fragile ceasefire with the Hamas rulers of the Strip. I'm going to lay out two um, explanations for Netanyahu and the Likud party's support for Hamas. Uh, Number one would be that um, Israel thought that they could control the Golem the golem of Hamas. They thought that they could keep it under control and play it off other entities within the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and play them against Palestinian Authority and that eventually it just got out of hand and they lost control of Hamas and the October 7th attack was the result. Um, Another possible explanation is that Uh, I call it either the false flag or the green flag, that Israel planned the October 7th attack or at at least knew it was coming and let it happen for political reasons. And the evidence for this 
is that Netanyahu has benefited politically, at least in the short term, from the October 7th attack um, in that the all the attention has been taken away from the judicial reforms that his Likud party has been has pushed through and um, these these reforms were actually just struck down by the Israeli Supreme Court and for the first time in history the Israeli Supreme Court knocked down a basic law in Israel and Israel doesn't have a constitution so um, the substitution are these the equivalent of their constitution are these basic laws and one of them was just knocked down so to summarize either this was unintention an unintentional effect of there i should say the october 7th attack was an unintentional effect of israel supporting hamas or israel wanted the attack on october 7th to happen what do you think ness it's speculation on my part i don't have the audacity to think that I understand at anything more than a very superficial level the political and cultural conditions on the ground inside of Israel. But if I'm Netanyahu and my goal is to take Gaza and then eventually take the West Bank and make it Israel proper, um, fully under the control of Israel, then having Hamas as a partner, a presumed negotiating partner that I can use as a pretense to never actually negotiate in good faith is is the way that I'm going to go. So I think the idea that it's it's a golem that they thought they could control is a little bit naive. I think it's more like it it's an enemy that they can always beat and when the opportunity presents itself they can totally crush it on some pretense that is based on some action that Hamas takes. And I think that fits well with the the fact that it took like seven hours for Israel to respond and that this is allegedly the most surveilled border area in just about the entire world, and yet it was able to be breached by people riding in hang gliders and, and hopping over walls. Uh, the, the videography was exactly the kind of thing that like a maniacal Hamas extremist would would engage in, but also that was made for TV for the international community to sympathize with Israel and sympathize with Israel's response. So Israel already wanted to clear out uh, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and this Hamas attack just gives them the green light to do what they've been wanting to do for a long time. Is that fair to say? Well, it depends on what you mean by Israel. I, that's my read of what the Likud party and what Netanyahu wants to do and his, a lot of his political allies. But as far as Israel proper, the majority of the Israeli citizenry, I, I, I don't know. Well, I do have some information on that. Um, I wanted to quote some of uh, Israeli officials, some of the statements that they've issued. Um, I guess first, first that, let me, I found this Pew poll from 2016 that uh, showed that almost half of Israeli Jews either agreed or strongly agreed with the statement, Arabs should be expelled or transferred from Israel. Uh, that was from 2016. I know that number has gone up 
since then, and especially up since the October 7th attack. So back in, in 2016, uh, eight, uh, seven, eight years ago, it was almost half of Israeli Jews uh, agreed or strongly agreed that Arabs should be expelled or transferred from Israel. And um, some of these, I found some statements um, on uh, uh, January 1st of this year, 2024, the uh, Ben Gavir, who is the Minister of National Security for Israel, said that the current war presented an, quote, opportunity to concentrate on encouraging the migration of the residents of Gaza. Such a policy, he added, was, quote, a correct, just, moral, and humane solution. And on October 28th, 2023, so that was a few weeks after the attack um, when the Israeli forces were preparing for their invasion of Gaza, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, invoked the biblical story of the total destruction of Amalek by the Israelites, stating, quote, you must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible, and we do remember. And the Bible passage that he was referencing uh, is as follows. Quote, now go, attack Amalek, and proscribe all that belongs to him. Spare no one, but kill alike men and women, infants and sucklings, oxen and sheep, camels and asses. Um, so I quote those because I don't think the Likud party could be any clearer on what their intent is. They want to either kill or expel all Arabs from the Gaza Strip. And... That's the first part of their strategy. Uh, then the part that affects me as an American, perhaps, is what they want to do with the Palestinian Arabs who don't get killed. They want to send them to Western countries. And there was a Wall Street Journal op-ed published on November thirteenth, two 2023. It was written by... Um, a member of the Knesset, a Likud member of the Knesset, and, um, and as well as a UN ambassador. And the title of the article is The West Should Welcome Gaza Refugees. The bottom line is that Israel wants the Arabs out of the Gaza Strip and hopefully the West Bank as well. They want them either dead or gone, and they're trying now to get other Western countries to absorb these people. These same people who they say are so dangerous that they they're so dangerous that they're fair game to kill, and yet they also think that these people should be spread among Western countries. Is it Western countries in particular? I think they just want them out of Israel and no of none of the surrounding Arab countries want them either. The, the sad truth is that Palestinians are some of the most miserable people on the planet. And a lot of that can be attributed to the fact that you, we're looking at more than a generation now. The vast majority of the population has never known anything other than the open-air prison that is the Gaza Strip. And so at this point in time, there's nowhere that they can go that they're not going to be a burden, including other surrounding less developed countries like Jordan or Egypt relative to Israel. And so the only 
potential global suckers who are going to take them are going to be Western European or formerly Western European nations. Netanyahu alluded to that problem uh, recently. He says, Our problem is finding countries that are willing to absorb Gazans, and we're working on it. So by working on it, do we interpret that as meaning uh, ginning up so much international... Uh, sympathy for the Gazans that there is a push in Western countries to take the Gazans in or is it by coming up with uh, agreements where the Congo is taking some Uh, that's one of the countries that Netanyahu specifically mentioned are taking in some number of Gazan uh, refugees so maybe it's a combination of evoking international sympathy in first world countries and also bribing countries that are even less developed or on the same level of development as the Gaza Strip. So in conclusion, my take on this situation is that Israel uh, helped build up Hamas for years. uh, And then they were attacked on October 7th and they decided to blitzkrieg and ethnically cleanse the Palestinians from Gaza. And now it's the quote, international community's responsibility to take in the Palestinians. And I guess the chutzpah has to be admired on some level. Um, but I, what I cannot wrap my head around is why Israel, specifically Netanyahu and the Likud party, would literally finance Hamas. I, I don't understand that. I, I think the answer is that they have to get Hamas to the level to create the pretense to push the Palestinians out of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. How do you get to this point if you're dealing with the Palestinian Authority? I think you answer your own question. If reclaiming all of Israel's territory as Netanyahu and the Likud party see it is the ultimate goal, time is not on Israel's side because fertility rates, uh, demographics being destiny, if they don't reclaim it now, then sometime in the future... 30 years out, the Jewish population of Israel is going to be a minority population. It's the same thing that's happening across Western countries throughout the world. Uh, We can go on a little tangent as to whether or not Israel is a Western country, uh, but I think it's clear that in another generation or two, if Israel isn't, quote, ethnically cleansed, unquote, then it will no longer be a Western country, even if Jews are, are granted Western status because it will be majority Arab, it will be majority Muslim, and majority non-Jewish. So what you're saying is mission October 7th was mission accomplished as far as Israel was concerned. They got what they needed to do what they've been wanting to do for a long time. Now they finally have the pretext to do it. I would characterize it as mission undertaken, because without an incident like this and a quotidian continuation then the eventual outcome from the hardliner pro-israel perspective is one of inevitable defeat over time due to demographics now since we've been talking about jewish power and influence in the middle east let's shift over and look at jewish power and influence in the united states all right and before we do that as a reminder you're listening to the reality taboo podcast please remember to like share, and subscribe. What Ness was referring to are the uh, were the December 5th, 2023 congressional hearings in which the presidents of 
MIT, Harvard, and University of Pennsylvania were called before the Sanhedrin, I mean the uh, U.S. Congressional Committee, um, and they were dr grilled about how they're not doing enough, uh, why they're not doing enough to combat anti-Semitism on college campuses. And as a result of that, uh, we're recording this on January 6th, uh, shortly after the hearings in December, the president of UPenn was fired or resigned. And just a few days ago, uh, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, resigned. And the I think it's interesting that of the three presidents, uh, the two non-Jewish presidents are gone, and the one Jewish president is still there. And the temporary replacement for Claudine Gay is a Jewish man. And I'll give my take on what I think this says uh, in, a, in, in a broader context, uh, I think it's showing the that there is a conflict between the DEI framework that's been set up and is has now pervaded higher education and many other institutions in America. Uh, so there's a conflict between the DEI framework and the framework of Jewish people being seen uh, being put into the oppressed category. And my take is that this situation has uh, opened the eyes of a lot of Jewish people who previously thought that they would benefit from the DEI framework and that they would be put into that. There's a dichotomy in the DEI framework of oppressed uh, and oppressors. And they thought they would fit into the oppressed. And I think they're realizing now that they are coded as white. They might think of themselves as something other than white and as oppressed, but mo almost all non-white people view them as privileged, powerful white people. The Jews win. The, the, they always win. And as hard as it is for people on the dissident right to take to heart, the best outcome of this conflict between the Jewish power structure and the DEI framework that Jeff was referring to more broadly is for Jews in America to view themselves as whites and their fates as indistinguishable from the fates of whites more generally. It is worth noting, though, in the case of the MIT uh, president who is Jewish, that Bill Ackman has made it clear that that she is the next target. So I don't think she's getting a reprieve simply for being Jewish. And of course, it's not as simple as Jews versus non-Jews. Uh, at least Stefanik is Roman Catholic, and yet she is the one who, the con congressional leader who is grilling these, these presidents. And so you have a, a Catholic attempting to defenestrate a Jewish president of MIT on the grounds of this Jew's alleged anti-Semitism. So why do you think Claudine Gay got the axe? I have to be honest, I was very surprised to read that she had uh, that she had resigned or been, been pushed out. I did not think that the first black president of Harvard who's been on the job for only about six months, I, I thought she would be able to make it through this. What, what's your take? Why is she gone? 
She's gone because when she was asked point blank whether or not Harvard had a policy against allowing people to call for the genocide of Jews, she equivocated and couldn't simply say no. She allowed herself to be boxed in and she can't speak like a normal human because all of these people in these managerial roles spend so much time with with word salads that say nothing, that she couldn't just answer the question simply no. And of course, she should have previously not even allowed herself to be boxed in. In the first case, she should have responded that the idea, the, the equation of common political slogans in the Arab world are equatable with uh, the most cartoonish version of Nazi Germany's final solution for the Jews is ridiculous and she, if she would have just said that then she wouldn't have been able to put herself she wouldn't have put herself in this position in the first place but as far as the question about the first black female president of Harvard the, uh, another member uh, you said it was a Jewish member has as a temporary Jewish yes, person a, is taken, a, a male Jewish man yeah Whatever the case is, and in positions like this, she, she may have been the first in this specific category, but she'll be subbed out for someone else who's more or less indistinguishable from her. Put you on the spot, Ness. What is the race of the next Harvard president going to be? I can't say what the race will be with any certainty, but it will not be a Gentile. It will not be a white Gentile that I'm confident of. So shortly after those December congressional hearings, you started seeing a lot of attention paid uh, to these allegations of plagiarism against Claudine Gay. Do you think that the plagiarism was the reason she ultimately got fired or resigned? I think it was the pretense. But standing alone, no, I don't think it, it was enough to make the difference. These... Plagiarism accusations were made public almost two years ago by uh, Chris Brunet, I think is his name. Uh, somebody writes on uh, Substack, among other places. And he ended up teaming up with Chris Rufo, who's better known, to bring these plagiarism accusations to marshal all the evidence and, and bring them to the public. But I think it was a useful pretext, and that, that was a pretense, and that was all. Imagine, if you can, and it's hard to do, that there was congressional hearings over some anti-Christian or anti-white issue that came up, and it was brought up um, that sh that Claudine Gay had in engaged in plagiarism. Would she have been forced to resign in that circumstance? And the answer, again, is self-evidently no, because Harvard has defended her even after all of this came to light, even after the congressional testimony on anti-Semitism. Initially, Harvard defended her. It was only when the pressure from the power centers became so strong that she had to be forced out. And that pressure would have never arisen had she not equivocated when she was asked point blank whether or not calls for genocide of Jews was something that was tolerated at Harvard. So what do you think was going on in those rows? roughly a month between the congressional hearings and when she got fired. <laughs> Bill Ackman and company were marshalling forces. Uh, he's So Bill Ackman's a hedge fund manager, and Harvard's hedge fund endowment is $51 billion. If we do a little back-of-the-envelope calculation, um, enrollment at Harvard is $50,000 a year. 
So a cool million students could have, could have had their tuitions paid for from that endowment. Uh, the freshman class at Harvard is about 2,000 students. So just with the existing endowment at Harvard, the Harvard could cover the freshman tuition for its classes for the next 500 years. Uh, the point of that is that the endowment is, is a huge part of what makes Harvard what Harvard is. And that endowment is managed and created from donations from people like Bill Ackman. And so, yeah, a couple months of that pressure was enough to be the final nail in the coffin for her. So now that Claudine Gay is out as president, what's next in her illustrious career? She's going to land on her feet. She she did what she needed to do in her resignation letter. She didn't blame, <laughs> she didn't blame Israel or pro-Israel supporters, anything like that, let alone call out Bill Ackman for being Jewish or at least Stefanik for being uh, neoconservative or anything like that. Instead, she did what they always do, and she blamed white supremacy. She blamed hate. She made allusions to this uh, reservoir of bigotry. And so she didn't address the forces that expelled her. Instead, she attacked the Goldstein boogeyman that actually doesn't have any power. And so she's not doing anything to challenge the, the current power structure, the way that it's set up. And so consequently, she's not going to be thrown under the bus completely. She's embarrassed here, but she's going to land on her feet. Well, that's a relief. I was worried about her. Yeah, she's probably not going to make $900,000 a year like she was as the president of Harvard, but she'll still be able to get something in the in the six figures for sure. And it's going to be a, a low-effort job that, that doesn't require much work, 20-hour work week sort of thing, plagiarism, all of that. We'll continue. She'll be comfortable. She might have to write a few more articles, though. Then she's, she might have to up, up her uh, academic output a bit. What has it been, 11 over... 20 years, so maybe she needs to go to, to 11 over over a decade, double her output, I think half her pay. I mean, we should feel a little sorry for her. That is, that is kind of rough. So my take on this situation is that the demand for black female intellectuals outstrips the supply. And so as a result, mediocrities like Claudine Gay rise to the top. They are not subjected to much scrutiny because very few people want to go out on a limb criticizing a black woman, especially after George Floyd was killed in 2020. I don't think it has to necessarily be a black woman per se, although that that fits the bill just fine. The broader point is that when we have people wafted up on DEI credentials instead of intellectual, legitimate intellectual chops, they are always easily dispatched if needed. So the pretense can be found simply, more simply than if these people were put in positions based on their merit. Because they are fraudulently placed there in the first place, they can be removed at any time for any reason. And that's what we see happening here. With the plagiarism. Right, with the plagiarism. The the fact that she is a fraud is a feature. It's not a bug. Well, our episode has a very, uh, has a very Semitic flavor this week. We started with the October 7th attack by Hamas in Israel, and then we moved on to the fallout here in the United States. Ness, anything else you wanted to add? Orthogonally, I think it's worth mentioning that this 
this framework, the DEI framework that we had talked about, alluded to earlier, is a sore spot in the, the global homo imperial framework. Um, I think creating a new Kazaria in Ukraine for an Israel backup, that's clearly failed at this point. Ukraine is not going to be the backup state for Jews to flee to from other countries because of Russia's success in Ukraine. It would have been ideal from an international relations perspective to have successfully created a new Kazaria because in a situation, hypothetical situation where a new Jewish state in Eastern Europe exists, going Gaza on Slavs is something that will not evoke any sort of international condemnation. But because that has failed so spectacularly, we're stuck with the same problematic framework where you have white Israelis attacking their Arab non-white neighbors. And so that narrative is always going to create tension in the West. So this is a problem that we're going to be seeing uh, repeat itself in various manifestations into the into the indefinite future. That said, I don't want to totally oversell the the issues that this this creates uh, for for the Israelis or for the the power structure more generally. There is a lot of public support in the United States for the Israelis. So we're looking at a Economist YouGov poll from the end of 2023. So this is months after. October 7th and Israel's response in the Gaza Strip to those attacks and we see that by an almost three to one margin Americans say that they are more sympathetic towards the Israelis than they are to the Palestinians and that that shifts a little bit with age so among those under the age of 30 it's split almost equally in terms of sympathy for Palestinians and Israelis, uh, but for those over the age of 65, so <laughs> boomers, 63% uh, have more sympathy for the Israelis, while only 6% have more sympathy for the Palestinians. So I say this will go on forever. It'll go on for a couple more generations anyway, um, and in the internet age, that might as well be forever. As someone in that 18 to 30-year-old age range, I can sympathize with that perspective. I feel the same way, and I just am appalled by what's going on in Palestine. And I came across this article by Chris Hedges that uh, sums up my, my feelings pretty well. He said, The moral universe has been turned upside down. Those who oppose genocide are accused of advocating it. Those who carry out genocide are said to have the right to defend themselves. Vetoing ceasefires and providing 2,000-pound bombs to Israel that throw out metal fragments for thousands of feet is the road to peace. Refusing to negotiate with Hamas will free the hostages. Bombing hospitals, schools, mosques, churches, ambulances, and refugee camps, along with killing three former Israeli hostages stripped to the waist, waving an improvised white flag and calling out for help in Hebrew, are routine acts of war. Killing over 21,300 people, including more than 7,700 children, injuring over 55,000 and rendering nearly all of the 2.3 million people in Gaza homeless is a way to, quote, de-radicalize Palestinians. None of this makes sense, as protesters around the world realize. 
as someone between Zoomer and Boomer myself, I I can understand that sentiment while at the same time having no love lost for somebody like Chris Hedges who would similarly characterize the moral universe of flyover Americans as something that's uh, extremely troubling to say the least. The accusations he makes against Israel being an effectively 21st century Nazis or the same thing he would say to Trump supporters. There, there's some grace given uh, for the fact that he, he's said that they're misguided, but he has no sympathy for the concerns of middle Americans either. Jewish advocacy is a, a brutal business, uh, as is a, a lot of advocacy when military questions or disputed territory is, is at hand. And and so uh, it, it's it's not pretty. In some ways, I can can sympathize with with even somebody like Netanyahu as as bloodthirsty as it seems like he is. If you imagine him more as a general who is is trying to win a campaign and looking at all of the pieces on the board as potential tools or potential uh, obstacles to what the ultimate goal to accomplish is, it's not a question of moral universes or inverted universes. It's a question instead of principles, it's a question of interests. And that's, that's something that moralizers often have a hard time understanding when they're discussing issues like this. So from the river to the sea, that's the Reality Taboo episode for this week. Talk to you guys next week. Thanks for joining us. 